Tonight's talk is on giving and receiving. How giving and receiving can be the pathway to really freeing our hearts. And to start just to say that giving and receiving are really the basic characteristics of all life forms. Taking in and giving out. Taking in air, out carbon dioxide are the reverse for plants taking in food and water and information and then that continual output of liquids, solids, gases, movements, sounds, thoughts. We're always taking in and putting out. On the subtlest level, we can put out prayer, loving energy. But it's a constant relationship we're in with this environment, this web of life. To be healthy means to be part of this system in an open, fluid way, where there's really a relaxed flow in the receiving and letting go process. And our practice, our meditation practice, is really training in just this. What happens is, in every moment that we rest in mindful awareness, we're training ourselves to allow life to arise, to simply receive it. And we're allowing it to pass, because that's what life does. It appears and it disappears. And mindfulness is really the quality of awareness that does not interfere, but rather becomes that flow by being totally present and wakeful in the midst of it. In meditation practice, we cultivate two qualities two basic archetypal qualities of mind, one being active and the other being receptive. In an active way, when experience is happening, our practice is to recognize, to literally bring the mind to it and connect with what's happening, to see clearly. So this has been described as the two wings of the bird. With this wing, it's an act of recognition, grokking, getting what's happening. In the receptive side of it, which is compassion, there's a receiving and accepting and inclusion of what we experience. So we recognize it in an active way and we rest in it. We open to it in a profound, inclusive way. Now these two qualities are totally interdependent. As you can imagine, you can't recognize what's going on if you're busy interfering and pushing it away. It requires an acceptance and an allowing to see clearly what's there. And on the other side, you can't really allow and accept an experience unless you know what it is. We don't really accept each other until we've understood and connected with who the other being is. So these are interdependent qualities of practice. Now, as we know, and you find out whether it's in formal practice or in life, maintaining this kind of receptive, present awareness is really, really hard. As the Buddha described it, all of our conditioning to want things one way and to fear they're going to be another way leap into existence moment after moment and make it quite difficult to be allowing. 
We see this most clearly in our relationships with each other and with ourselves. On the receptive side, it's very hard to receive what's going on when it gets painful, when we feel threatened, when we're afraid, when we're hurt. It's hard to receive parts of our own being when we have a deep, deep kind of habit of not liking them. It's hard to take in. And similarly, it's hard to put out. It's hard to give out unconditional love because we're always wanting things to be our way. So it's very hard to put that aside and just truly, unconditionally allow a being, allow ourselves to be as we are. So for the sake of living more fully and loving more fully, we practice. We practice very specifically as we sit, letting the life that arises be, seeing it clearly, touching it with love. That's our practice. This training is transformative in the sense that what we start off with is being identified as a small self that needs to keep pushing away and holding on and controlling our life. What we open to is the awareness that we're boundless, connected, and we don't have to do the kind of controlling we thought we had to do. The metaphor I've come to like the most in understanding how the small self or ego constructs itself and keeps itself in prison, in a sense, is sensing our ego as a room. And we all have created this room or this cocoon, and we try to make our experience just so in this room. We have to close off the windows and stuff to keep the temperature a certain way, because we like it a certain way. We only want certain smells. We want certain foods in our room, and we don't want other foods, right? We want it to look a certain way. We want to appear a certain way. We want things just so. And people, we only want certain people to come into our room because those are the people that we feel at ease with. And so we let in some and shut out most. The more we do this, the more we keep adjusting and fine-tuning our preferences on how to make our room or our life just so, the more we find that we have a real reactivity when it's not the way we want it. We get very sensitive. It's like we're allergic to a lot of life. We get allergic to parts of ourselves. It's not just allergic to what's on the outside. We're allergic. We stuff in closets inside the room the parts of our own being that are not beautiful, that are unwanted. Now, this cocoon or room that we've created developmentally had a purpose early on. It's not like it was a mistake that we came to have an ego. And yet, as most of us know, the things that made us have to be more protective when we were younger, for the most part, we don't need to do the same thing, but it's our habit. We're still holding the armor around our wounded hearts. And it's difficult to step out or to open the door or to explore what else is possible. But what happens is, and this is what most of us find, 
is there's a sense of suffocation when we're very tight and controlling and not letting people in and not allowing this and not open to the different experiences of life it gets stagnant uncreative we're not part of the flow there's not much fresh air coming in and we find we're very unspontaneous not able to respond in a natural way because we're so busy protecting things so we get drawn to the spiritual path because we sense this stale quality and there's a sense of deep dissatisfaction at living in an isolated way at living in a way that doesn't feel fully alive and we intuit that what we don't accept what we're closing off the the windows and the doors to what we're keeping the closets closed down on that which we don't accept keeps our hearts bound our hearts stay bound as long as we have an armor that stops life from flowing in and flowing out so our practice is this gradual opening it's not abrupt it can't be we have too much sensitivity and conditioning to do it abruptly that's not compassionate it's gradual where we learn to receive and touch and let life in there's a way in which we take some steps out and dip our feet in the river and open the windows and doors but then for many of us have to shut things down again and and regroup and and rediscover a sense of perspective or humor in a quietness and a protective way so that we have the space to open again we do this with each other's support with friends with community this this gradual practice of opening of tentatively letting in and letting the exchange happen it's the only way to free us it's the only way to release our pain there's a beautiful ritual in zambia it's about a tooth and it's really a ritual about how a community together with the same intention can include what has been excluded when someone in the village is sick or disturbed they imagine it is caused by an ancestor's tooth that has gotten inside that person that person's sickness affects everybody in the village because they are connected with one another so they make a ritual to get this tooth this sickness out of the person but the tooth won't come out unless the truth comes out and the sickness includes all of the hatreds and conflicts felt by everybody in the village the sick person has to express what's really troubling him or her and it's usually not very noble it's jealousy or rage or another of those darker human passions but the tooth won't come out of the sick person until all of the troubled feelings come out of everybody else in the village the release happens only when everything comes out in the midst of dancing and singing and drumming the whole village gets cleansed by the release of the tooth through the release of these difficult truths so it's opening the doors allowing ourselves to touch and express and expose what's been called the soft spot 
our vulnerability. And we do this in a very deep way on our own in meditation. Meditation is a moment-to-moment willingness to touch what's there. And I think willingness is an important word. It's that we in some way care more about feeling alive than holding on to our, own, our old ways of pushing away life. This quality of care, caring presence, really is our nature and our potential. Einstein puts it so well when he says that we have this optical delusion of separateness whereby we limit our love. If this is the prison we create for ourselves by limiting our love to only certain people under certain circumstances, only certain parts of ourselves, we're in prison. And he says our task, and this is what I love the most, our task is to widen that circle of compassion to include all of life. Usually the place we have to start is with the rejected parts of our own being. This is something that most of us have found. I'll read you a little story. A woman that was dying of AIDS was being uh, counseled and comforted by a priest, but his comfort, his attempts at comfort really were to no avail. She said, I'm lost. I've ruined my life and every life around me. Now I'm going painfully to hell. There is no hope for me. The priest saw a framed picture of a pretty girl on the, t- on the dresser. Who is this, he asked. The woman brightened. She is my daughter, the one beautiful thing in my life. And would you help her if she was in trouble or made a mistake? Would you forgive her? Would you still love her? Of course I would, cried the woman. I would do anything for her. Why do you ask such a question? Because I want you to know, said the priest, that God has a picture of you on his dresser. Begin to open to that boundless quality of compassion that can really include all parts of our own being. This is the way that we open and ventilate the system, that we kind of start waking up out of the cocoon is by really connecting with the disowned parts, connecting with all of life. It's called bodhicitta, the awakening heart. This is what the awakening heart is, this quality of including and including and including, letting go of our armor and letting ourselves touch what is soft, what is messy, what is alive. There's a lovely story about the Dalai Lama who happens to be, from every of the teachers I know that have gone and met with him, Besides being enormously wise and compassionate, he's very humble. He really does not have an arrogant streak, you know. And he said, I'm not sure why people like me. And he said, the only thing I, I sense is that they like me for the qual- one quality, which is I value bodhicitta. I don't claim to practice it. I don't practice it perfectly, but I value it. 
It's a powerful statement that if we just value caring, if we value waking up, that really is our awakening heart expressing itself. Even when we're feeling shut off and disconnected, if we can just remember to in some way care, to want to care, to wish we could care, even if we're not caring, that we value caring is the first way of opening that door a little to letting the life flow. The healing process and the meditation practice is befriending over and over again what is difficult, what we habitually resist. And it's hard to befriend what we resist because our habit is when we come to that edge where we feel we've, gotten, we've just seen a part of ourselves that is really, really unacceptable, how we create suffering for others, our greed, our anger, or we feel anger towards another person, or great fear because of a situation we're, we're moving towards. When we come to that edge, it's our deep, deep conditioning to contract, to push it away. And it's our practice in meditation to do really the opposite, to soften, to make room. We push it away because we think something's wrong. That's the translation that we make. When there's pain, when there's fear, when there's grief, when there's loneliness, we think something's wrong. We think in some way it's bad. There's a very profoundly transformative understanding that the more that we relate to it, the more our lives, every aspect can wake up. And that's the understanding that all that is messy, that we've been describing as difficult, is the grounds of our awakening. It's not when things are perfect conditions, perfect temperature, the top of the mountain, seeing the beautiful uh, vistas with the right person, whatever. It's the hard and honest and courageous work of connecting just with what is in our lives right now, befriending what we've been pushing away. Most of us can get this intellectually and definitely in retrospect. When I sit with groups and we do sharings about the phases of our life in terms of spiritual unfoldings and what really was meaningful and made a difference, most people point to times of a lot of struggle a lot of difficulty, and the coming through that period was the breaking open to a new level or new depth of spiritual experience. Birth is a struggle. Every form of birth, every moment that we let ourselves be reborn, involves a letting go of resistances, a courageous quality to open. I love the line that our heart breaks open to include and feel in love with our lives. We break open. So our challenge is not in retrospect, but in the midst of when it's hard, when we're contracting into the something's wrong, I hate myself, I hate my life, to not buy into 
that something's wrong, but instead be willing to start just with that. Start where you are to see the, the judgments that are so painful, to touch into the vulnerability. Whatever arises, whatever visitor, as Rumi puts it, that arises, whether it's fear or grief or pain, to really welcome that. He ends this poem, The Guest House, with the line, each has been sent as a, gu- as a guide from beyond. Just when we think that we've opened to something, we find that there's always more. It's an ongoing process. I've shared with most of you uh, my experience when I was at the one-month retreat several, now about six weeks ago, and how I got very sick. And for the first while, thought bad, wrong, something's wrong with me, If only I could get better, then I could meditate. You see how we do that? If only this painful, messy whatever, then I could be the spiritual good person, you know. So what ended up happening was after a while I caught on. I said, this is it. This is my meditation. So really it was about dropping the stories and being with pain in a very direct and honest way. And in that process, as most of you have discovered, when we really are honestly with the pain in our beings or another's pain, compassion arises. We, we open to a space that makes room for what's there. So I finally kind of got over the hump and was feeling a sense of real spaciousness and freedom that I could not reject this painful, sick body, but let this be the meditation. It was the grounds of what was happening. And I was feeling a bit of spiritual pride about that, you know. And I was about to go to an interview with uh, Joseph, who was the teacher I was working with, Joseph Goldstein. And on my way to the interview, I saw a note posted for me on the bulletin board. So I looked at it. And as a background, so you know, at IMS, many people are highly sensitive to fragrances. So there's a rule at IMS that you're not supposed to wear any body lotions, shampoo, don't use shampoo or anything else that's got fragrance. Well, the note said, um, Dear Tara, could you please check your personal products, body products, because um, there has been a complaint about uh, the smell. So (laughs) all my equanimity and spaciousness and this open-hearted feeling went And instead, I walked around going, God, I tried to compute how many people had smelled me, you know? (laughs) It was pure shame, and I was very identified with it. And for hours, like all these stories are running through. I'm never going to go back in the main meditation hall. (laughs) You know, I was, it was just enormous until finally there was this wry smile of recognition. Oh, yeah, this too. This is the meditation. So I had to sit down into shame. And shame is hard. I mean, when you're at a retreat, everything gets blown up very big. So what right now, when I think of, okay, so I had shampoo that had chamomile, you know, so what? (laughs) It was an oversight. I shouldn't have, but I don't feel awful. But then I did. So finally, I opened to shame. There was compassion. There was, you know, 
and it took hours and hours. So I finally went back to my Zafu, and on the Zafu, right in the middle of it was a dead fly. And I went, oh, how symbolic. This is that ego self that I've, you know, let go of and so on. And I kind of gently put the fly aside and sat down to meditate. And immediately, another one started buzzing in my ear, and I was instantly irritated, you know, instantly back into, if only this fly would get away, I could meditate. Do you see what I'm talking about? It just, it just keeps coming. Life will keep on offering us opportunities to go, ah, this too, and then have to open even more than we thought we ever would. And yet, there's an enormous joy and happiness, much deeper than when we get our way, when we find that we have room for whatever is going to happen, because it's going to happen anyway, right? So why not practice a way of relating to whatever arises that's allowing, that's receptive? This is a poem by Thomas Carlyle that I like a lot that has to do with the willingness to relate to the hard stuff. He puts it this way, it is good to use best china, the most genuine goblets, the oldest lace tablecloth. There's a risk, of course, any time we use anything or anyone shares an intimate moment or a fragile cup of revelation. But not to touch, not to handle the artifacts of being human is the quiet crash, the deadly catastrophe, where nothing is enjoyed or broken, are spilled, are spoken, are stained, are mended, where nothing is ever lived, loved, laughed over, wept over, where nothing is ever lost or found. So each moment that we open to what is difficult is a moment where we cultivate this quality of aliveness, presence, and deep compassion. Because when we open to what's painful, the very nature of opening to pain is the gateway to compassion. It's the natural response. When we open to our own pain, we're able to be with others' pain. And we all know what that's like when somebody can really be present. You know, we like getting gifts and compliments and this and that, but there's nothing we more deeply cherish than the capacity another might have to bring just true caring presence, like feeling with us what's going on. It's rare and it's beautiful. And we can offer that to others when we've done it to the different parts of our own vulnerable self. We love ourselves and our lives when we're in this open way of really being willing to be with, when we're feeling a sense of communing or intimacy, when the natural response when we see somebody is to be helpful. We love it. It feels so great to be overflowing. When we're receptive to the difficulties, we naturally become generous. There's nothing to hold on to. But it's not in our culture. Our culture is very defended, tight-fisted. This from the New York Times. A woman fainted 
when a man offered her his seat on the subway. <laughs> when she recovered, she thanked him and he fainted. <laughs> it takes a real letting go of resistance and a real willingness to not know what's going to happen to be present. If we think it's all under wraps and it's going to be a certain way, we're not really there. We're tight. Compassion and action, being with what's most difficult, doesn't have a, a real clear formula. So for instance, in this example I love from Pema Chodron's uh, books and tapes, of working with anger when you're feeling an enormous amount of anger towards another person. And her guidelines are first to not do what you would normally habitually do, to not do. But instead, to have the willingness to feel what's happening. It's really hard with anger, because anger, the very chemistry of anger is to not sit down in it, but to you know, flail out, push away, strike, whatever. <coughs> to sit down in that discomfort, to not know how you're going to respond, but to be willing to feel what's there, and then to respond as well as possible. And she says, it might come out terribly, but at least it'll be fresh. <laughs> we can't grow if we keep repeating the same old way. And the only way we can connect with our heart is by starting where we are, feeling what's there, the anger, the fear, whatever. What makes us draw away from the pain, what keeps us separate and disconnected, is fear. We are wired to be afraid of pain. And the Buddha describes this fear as the cause for the enemy of compassion. In other words, there's enemies to, the qual to the what are called the divine abodes, the, the open-hearted qualities. And the enemy of compassion is cruelty, hatred. When we have fear in us, when we feel separate from ourselves, from each other, it becomes very easy in that fear to strike out, to violate, to hurt. So the enemy of compassion is considered to be cruelty or hatred, and it arises out of fear. Now, compassion also has what are called near enemies, and these are quite interesting. They get mixed up with compassion in our minds. We think we're being compassionate, or someone else is. And again, the near enemies are really our care that is contracted by fear. In other words, our basic heart cares, but fear is confining and distorting the situation. And what comes out, instead of compassion, is pity. When there's fear, we feel pity, because pity is a way of saying, yeah, you over there, I'm, I'm so sorry you're suffering, but I'm separate, removed, maybe a little better, definitely luckier, but not really relating to the pain in an open, honest way that, where we have a shared sense of humanity. So that's one of the near enemies of compassion. The other, which is very similar, the other fear-based response is what, in this culture, we've been calling codependence, where we give away the store. We, we, because we want someone to love us or someone not to leave us, uh, we don't respect our own boundaries or we don't respect their boundaries. And then there's all sorts of unhealthy behaviors like 
enabling behaviors where we go into denial or don't face up to unhealthy behaviors like addictions. We all know that happens and how destructive it is that out of our wanting, out of our fearing, out of our wounds, we, in the name of care and love, and there is care there, uh, relate to another being in a way that's actually not so helpful. In this uh, cartoon, anybody that wants to see it afterwards, you can, there's two bears talking to each other and there's this guy they've hung up on a tree. His name's Bradshaw. He says he understands I came from a single parent den with inadequate role models. He senses that my dysfunctional behavior is shame-based and codependent, and he urges me to let my inner cub heal. I say we eat him. <laughs> so how to navigate, how to tell the difference between what's mature compassion and what is in some way got grasping, fear, codependence, pity. The main guideline is really mindful attention to how it's all happening. If we can begin to see under our behaviors and see our intention before I make this offer to help you or before I respond in a certain way to, to sense my intention. Is it based in fear? Is it based in grasping, wanting? To see our intentions is the most powerful way that we can begin to be free from the near enemies of compassion and open our hearts in a true way. Because the moment that we see and relate kindly to the fear that might be compelling our behaviors, in that moment, we're no longer subject to the fear as much. We're not so identified. That's the power of recognition, that when we could see what's going on, the one who sees, we become more open to, and we're less caught in the reactive behaviors. Now, connecting with our intention, really seeing our intentions, can have all sorts of outcomes. For some, it can mean keeping more distances from people, certain people or more boundaries. Compassion doesn't mean necessarily you toss away all boundaries. For some, it might mean erecting more boundaries. For others, it might be willingness to take a risk and disclose more and open more. This is at a, in a, with a particular person or a particular time. With the self, it might mean when you see your intentions that you, that you discover a willingness to practice more and be more disciplined and sit formally in meditation. Or it might mean that you decide to take more massages or hang out with friends more. So there's not a formula. It's just honestly connecting, mindfully being with what is. Tell you a story that that I thought was really a great illustration of this. Uh, one client who also is a meditation student came to session, and she said to me, "You know, tonight I have the night free, and I know I should meditate, but I don't want to meditate. I just want to get a movie, and I don't even want to get a good movie. I want to get, you know, just a something raunchy or rowdy or just entertainment." And she said, what should I do? You know, should I meditate or should I get some crummy movie? 
And she fully expected me to, you know, <laughs> meditate. So I started asking her about her intentions in, in going either way. And she said, well, she would med- her intention in meditating was to be a good girl, that she could then think she was a good person, a spiritual person. And her intention in getting a movie was to have fun, relax, enjoy something different. So I told her to go get the movie. Now, her habit when she goes to get videos is to go right to some area where there's educational videos. So this was really groundbreaking <laughs> behavior. And just to let you know more about her, because you might, as you might imagine, she'd spent most of her adult life uh, really trying hard to be a certain way and pushing under a lot of her life, a lot of her passion and eros and sexuality and spontaneity to be a good girl, because that's the way she thought spirituality should look. So she got a movie that just sounded enticing, watched it, and fell in love with the lead character. This happens sometimes. People, you know, that there's some archetypal something that connects us to a certain character. And, and it was really intense for me. She was really in love with the lead character. She saw the movie several times and, over, and then came back and she, in, to therapy. And she was very disturbed because all this energy that had been locked up for all these years, and it has been years, all of a sudden she was just filled up with passion and eros and all these things. And that's what she started with, just bringing mindful, allowing presence to that. We try to contrive the way it's supposed to be, the way we're supposed to look, what a spiritual life is, what a good person is. And that really takes us away from, when we go for the ideals, it takes us away from honestly saying, okay, this is what's happening, and being willing to be with that. It's the only place that freedom starts and freedom emerges out of, is just what's happening now. When we try to make ourselves look a certain way, be a certain way, we have this idea that we're not supposed to hurt, we're not supposed to look wounded. We've all been given messages, or not all of us, but many of us, to be strong, to be together, to not be needy, to not be wounded, to not be look hurt. So we've learned to put that on as a face. And we don't so often really listen to where we're wounded or vulnerable. We kind of abandon ourselves in the same way that others abandoned us when they couldn't handle our pain or our fear. Do you know what I mean by that? Just the way our parents, not being mean, but weren't able to, we lose that capacity or don't cultivate that capacity. So we go into denial. We pretend. There's a story of uh, some British soldiers in Africa at war, and one lost his leg in battle. The next day he wakes up and says cheerfully, I just woke up and found I had one sock too many. Denial. Monty Python, by the way, (laughs) in case you wonder. (laughs) Vipassana, our mindfulness practice, is our way back to what is really here. The main element of the practice, as I mentioned earlier, to clearly recognize, to see what's happening. 
to rest in the awareness that knows just this moment as you're sitting what is happening. To not spin off into the stories of good, bad, right, wrong. To just be with as it is. Sometimes, because our aversion is so strong, our resistance is so strong, that in addition to just recognition, mindfulness, we need some way to intentionally soften and open ourselves. And for the remainder of tonight, I'd like to talk about uh, the practices of compassion and loving kindness in a certain way tonight. I'm going to introduce it, and it's an expansion on uh, what I did several months ago on the practice of tonglen, which is sending and receiving. How to really learn to receive our lives, how to learn to give out, to let go, to let be. In the traditional way that Tonglen is taught, that this compassion practice is taught, we start with simply breathing in and imagining thick, dark, dense. That's what's coming in. And you can just check that out. And, and as I talk from this point on, just explore with yourself. Um, again, it's fine to move around and stretch, but just explore these ways of breathing and connecting. Breathing in what's thick and dark, breathing out what's white, what's light, what's clear. Breathing in what is difficult. Really letting the breath touch us everywhere, feeling what's difficult. Breathing it in with a willingness to feel what's there, to receive. Breathing out. And in the out-breath, we give whatever we've experienced space, our love, or whatever it needs. The out-breath is metta. It's the offering out of love, comfort, kindness. Breathing in what's difficult, receptive, open. Breathing out, letting go into space, offering love to what's there. Now, the purpose is not to breathe in something difficult so it sticks in us or to wallow in it. The power of this practice is in the in-breath, the breathing in what's difficult is that we begin to trust the transformative power of our heart. It's an alchemy that as we breathe in what's difficult, we transform and open ourselves. Many people ask about a more traditional way of meditating. Most of us have probably seen it, where what you breathe in really is white light and peace and happiness, and you breathe out negativity, right? So that's, that's something we're more familiar with. And just like affirmations, that can comfort and calm and soothe and be fine. But it does not radically transform our awareness. The more radical transformation comes when we're willing to breathe in what is, what's difficult, and when we discover that we not only can handle what we've been resisting, but by relating to where we're most vulnerable, we open to a more free, alive, spacious sense of being. That's what's transformative. Our sense of identity changes. When our resistance is gone, the demons are gone. 
the third Zen patriarch writes about this in this way. He says, the essence of pleasure is acceptance. Whatever may be the situation, if it is acceptable, it is pleasant. If it is not acceptable, it is painful. And then someone asked him, but pain is not acceptable. Maharaj answers, why not? Did you ever try? Do try, and you will find in pain a joy which pleasure cannot yield for the simple reason that acceptance of pain takes you much deeper than pleasure does. Acceptance of pain takes you much deeper than pleasure does. The personal self, by its very nature, is constantly pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain. The ending of this pattern is the ending of the self. The ending of the self with its desires and fears enables you to return to your real nature, the source of all happiness and peace. When we resist what's painful, it reinforces that sense of a cocoon, of a small self. But when we breathe in life, breathe in and touch what's painful, we ventilate and liberate. So just for a moment now, just as you breathe in, again explore receiving, touching whatever is there. Breathing in and really sensing the aliveness whether it's pressing, squeezing, sad, scary, happy, whatever. Let your intention be simply a deep willingness to receive what's there as you breathe in. The in-breath is truly inviting life, allowing life. Now the exhale, as I mentioned before, is really an offering or expression of loving kindness. That whatever you've touched, whatever vulnerability you've received, you're allowing it to be held in a space of caring. You're offering what you need to yourself. And in that, and this is the power of loving kindness, there's a deep softening and an opening to quite a vast space of awareness. There's many ways of doing this with the exhale, and I'll just describe a few and and continue to to experiment within your own self with the out-breath. So you breathe in and touch what's there. Feel the breath touching you everywhere. Feel what's happening. And with the out-breath, a letting go as if you could let go and dissolve out with the breath into a vast sky, or if it helps you instead, a vast ocean. So just visually sensing the space all around you, above, below, the vastness of space. And with each out-breath, dissolving outward into that, that whatever is touched, whatever vulnerability is felt with the in-breath, with the out-breath you dissolve outward into vast space. It helps to listen. That opens the awareness to space. Breathing in, touching what's there. Breathing out, listening, sensing vastness. There's room for your experience. Trust this and there's tremendous freedom. 
sensing space, opening that space more perhaps by allowing an energetic offering of care, just feeling care so that you breathe in and touch what's vulnerable and breathe out love, feeling that space permeated by love. It can be done by offering a phrase as in the traditional metta practice. May I feel safe. May I feel comforted or held. May this all be held in love. The phrases can open the space, soften the space even more. For some, gentle touching of the cheek or heart can help to really connect with that sense of compassionate awareness that holds what's vulnerable. So in Tonglen, we start with what is personal, what's raw and immediate within ourselves. And then we open to how that is universal. We sense how many beings, many, many beings are feeling just what we're feeling. If it's fear, if it's grief, if it's excitement, if it's physical pain, how many beings on this earth are feeling the same thing? So that with the in-breath, we begin to breathe in the pain that all these beings are feeling. And with the out-breath, offering metta or love to all beings. Now, some people feel like this is so contrary this breathing in the enormity of the suffering and breathing out and letting go of our love, our supply of love that we really need to hold within ourselves, that Pema Chodron described it. One student confessed that she was going to go ahead and do the practice, but she secretly hoped it wouldn't work. (laughs) We have this illusion that there's a limited supply of love and that we really can't afford to bring compassion to all beings. Whereas the truth is that the very nature of love is overflowingness. We discover the more we give away love, the more love blossoms, because it's our nature. Rumi writes, are you jealous of the ocean's generosity? Why would you refuse to give this joy to anyone? Fish don't hold the sacred liquid in cups. They swim the huge fluid freedom. You are that love. Starting with the breath now again, breathing in, whatever's happening, letting it be touched, whether it's boredom and restlessness or pain, our pleasure, comfort, fear, breathing in and just receiving it, yielding to what's there. Breathing out and dissolving outward, letting go, becoming that vast space of sky, of ocean, sensing sounds to open that space. Breathing in whatever's there. And if there's something vulnerable, dark, heavy, breathing that in. Breathing out white, light, clear. If you need to just emphasize the breathing in for a bit to connect to what you've been grappling with in the recent past. We all have something. 
And if you don't, then just connecting with what's right here. But breathing in and touching what's difficult if it's there for you. Breathing out and offering whatever that vulnerability needs. Space, love, comfort. Taking a few moments now in silence to continue that breathing in, the courage and honesty to touch what might be difficult. The breathing out, dissolving out, offering it space, offering it care. Breathing in and receiving this life. Breathing out, letting go, giving, offering love, space, freedom. Sensing now that whatever you're breathing in and touching, there are people elsewhere, other humans, that feel the same. Again, whether it's pleasure or pain, confusion, tiredness, blankness, it's all been felt by others and is being felt by others. So breathing in the experience that all beings that have this would feel opening to take in the suffering or the experience of others. It's just a deep willingness to connect with humanity, with all beings. Breathing this in and breathing out an offering of love, compassion, that this experience might be healing and transformative that all beings might benefit. bringing yourself back gently. Again, if you need to take a few deep breaths and then just stretch, please do. This is not a grim practice. Even though it seems that it's about pain and suffering, which it is, it starts with that, it's really about 
being with and transforming through that pain to a place of quite a lot of freedom and joy. It gives us the freedom to dance with this life when we learn to receive and give out. Some of you might have heard this at several years ago in Cyprus. The uh, president's son was kidnapped and the kidnappers uh, made conditions that, that were impossible to meet. So it was with a tremendous heaviness of heart that the president of Cyprus had to say that he couldn't, he couldn't go along with them. And by some miracle, the son was returned to he and his wife alive. And in the news clipping, the mother was holding her son, her child, and she said, this is the happiest day of my life. It's an interesting thing to say, to wonder why that day was happier than the day before he was kidnapped, you know. And what it really means to me has to do with the power of when we face mortality or impermanence or what's painful. There comes out of that this enormous cherishing of our moments. When we're willing to feel the pain, we get to be willing to feel the love and the joy also. On the last retreat here in uh, West Virginia, so many commented in their own ways of how this happened for them, that being with what was painful, resisting at first, but eventually just being with it, on the other side of being with what was difficult was a real deeper sense of happiness and gratitude and appreciation than usually is felt. That is what happens when we do this practice. When there's this willingness to touch what is, we open to an incredible sense of gratitude and appreciation. Uh, The last story I'd like to share with you is about a young child. Uh, This was, to me, quite moving. It was in the paper. Uh, Some of you might have seen it in the Post a number of months ago. There's a couple in Maryland that have a life-threatening disease which got passed down to their children, and three of the children died. But the fourth and the youngest also got the disease, but somehow or other, against the odds, uh, has been thriving. He's aware of why his siblings died and his own serious illness and his parents. This, This child's name is Maddie. And he was aware of it very early on. And when he was just three years old, he started composing and writing poetry. First he would compose it and his mom would write it and then he started to. And now he's six. He's quoted as saying, my mom is surprised how I can do these things. I just like to think about my feelings and write poetry. And he said his inspiration, the siblings that died, really feeling them. He says, they're angels in heaven. God, Jamie, Katie, and Stevie put ideas in my heart. Then it goes all the way up to my head and to my mouth. I let it out there. So I'd like to read you one of his poems. This is called On Being Thankful by Matthew Stepanek. Dear God, I was going to thank you tonight for a beautiful sunrise that was pink behind the fog down the hill and for a wonderful rainbow that I ran under pointing to all my favorite colors and for such a great sunset that sparkled orange across the water. I was going to thank you tonight for all of those special gifts except that none of them happened. 
But do you know what? I still love you, God. And I have lots of other things that I can thank you for tonight. Even if you didn't give me those very special gifts to me today, it's okay, God, because I'll look for them all again when my tomorrow comes. Amen. So this is a six-year-old. The article ended with uh, this, that at the end of every day he says the same prayer. Thank you, Jesus, for giving me just one more day. So a being that faces it and faces what seems to be so unacceptable opens to the deepest levels of acceptance and freedom and gratefulness and joy. When we open to the suffering, we open to the joy. And that gratitude is something that happens naturally and can also be nourished just simply by reflection by really just meditating on that. So I'd like to just end tonight with a very short guided meditation just to touch into that sense of appreciation. So if you will, just to sit up one last time. Take a moment again to allow the breath to open you breathing in and directly sensing aliveness, touching just what's there, breathing out and sensing space, 